Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I thank you for your presence that is here, that you were faithful. And Lord, we ask for your spirit to guide us this morning, to give us ears to hear you above all else work in our hearts O Lord that we might know you that we might seek you more diligently and love you more passionately we ask this in the name of Jesus our Lord and our Savior Amen to say that the last six months have been long would be an understatement Looking through a hospital window, we have seen fall turn to winter, winter turn to spring, and now as we look through it, we see summer on the horizon. Standing beside Emma's hospital bed, we have celebrated Thanksgiving, a wedding anniversary, Christmas, New Year's, Emma's birthday, Valentine's Day, Samuel's birthday, Jody's birthday, Easter, Mother's Day, and Memorial Day. I can't tell you why this has happened. Although I do believe there is a purpose. And I can't tell you how it happened. According to the doctors, there's no cause that they can point to. There's no mosquito bite, there's no tick bite, there's no test that could have predicted it, simply put. For some unknown reason. Emma's immune system, I'm sorry. Emma's immune system attacked her brain. And no one on earth can tell why or how it happened. And even though I can't tell you those two things, I can tell you what happened.
on November 12th, Saturday, Emma called us to tell us she didn't feel good. Her head was hurting. She felt nauseated. Sounded like she had the flu. We called her grandmother who lives in Chattanooga and her mamaw went, drove over to Bryan College where Emma's a student, picked her up and brought her back to her house. Early Sunday morning, Jody called to see how Emma was doing and Emma still didn't feel good. So Jody decided to drive down to be with her. That's, that's what moms do. Jody stayed there Sunday night and through Monday and then Monday night Emma was feeling worse so they decided to take her to the ER in Chattanooga. They arrived there and a CAT scan was done. It didn't show anything and the doctors felt like it was a migraine so they gave Emma the medicine and sent her home. But on Tuesday, Jody and Emma loaded into the van to drive back to Johnson City. I called Emma's doctor and made an appointment for Wednesday morning. On that morning, Jody and I took Emma to the doctor and no sooner had we got in the door till he took one look and suspecting viral meningitis told us to go to the emergency room and he would call ahead so that they would be waiting. There's certain things you'll never forget and I'll never forget seeing Bob. There's the waiting room that morning. Emma was leaning against me as we walked out. We got to the medical center and into the ER. They suspected viral meningitis, so they did a spinal tap to test her fluid. The pressure was extremely high and she was admitted to the hospital. Over the next two days, her blood pressure fluctuated tremendously so that a rapid response was called for two times and she spent one night in ICU. Things looked to be improving until Sunday afternoon, November 20th. The nurse and I helped Emma out of the bed so she could walk some. And Emma had a seizure. We got her back in the bed and it stopped and then shortly after that she had another one. We were moved to the neuro step-down unit to wait for Monday morning when an MRI could be done. I want to tell you that Sunday night, November 20th, was the first of a very long night. I remember the staff coming by after the Life Action Revival had ended that evening and we knelt in a circle in the hallway on our knees and cried out and I could remember being up all that night and just praying Psalm 30, Lord, weeping may last for a night, but joy will come in the morning. The next morning an MRI was done the very first thing. Now there are a lot of details that I am leaving out for the sake of time, but already we were seeing God's hand at work. For example, the physician's assistant to the neurologist really got things moving and we thank God for her every day. When she arrived, the nurse that had been caring for us met her and directed her to go to Emma's room first, which we later found out was unusual. And typically, the, the physician's assistant would have started on the opposite side and wouldn't have seen Emma till the very end of her rounds. This was not accident or coincidence. It was God's hand at work through people. You see, we often miss out on what God is doing because we're looking for the huge, we're looking for the miraculous, we're looking for the red seed apart when we miss the water that God's giving us right in front of us. There is no small act of God. No small acts of God. Even in what seems like the smallest of improvements, 
That is God's hand. Now at this point, Emma was in a coma. And she was intubated. A drain had been placed in her skull to relieve the pressure from the spinal fluid that was continuing to increase. But she was beginning to decline. Her blood pressure and temperature were erratic and the pressure in her skull was still extremely high. So that on November 23rd, Wednesday, the decision was made to move Emma to a larger facility where there were more resources and they may have dealt with things like this on a more regular basis because it was clear that this was something far worse than viral meningitis. Calls started to be made. We were looking for the very first place that had a bed open and that would accept Emma. They called Duke University. They didn't have any beds available in the neurocritical care unit. Call was placed to Vanderbilt. They had an opening and they were reviewing Emma's case. And at that point, we received word from the University of Tennessee Medical Center that they both had a bed and they also had a room open. Once again, this was God placing the right people in the right place because that same physician's assistant had worked at the neurocritical care unit and helped pave the way. That was God working through people to accomplish his plan. It was decided because of Emma's condition that wherever she went, she would be transported by fixed-wing airplane. The plane and the medical crew arrived before they got to the hospital things had gotten dramatically worse her intracranial pressure was extremely high to give you a feel for what we're talking about normal pressures anything less than 8 at 12 you have a severe headache Emma's was recorded at 56 her blood pressure was erratic and it was deemed that she was no longer stable enough to travel by plane. Jody and I were faced with a decision. We could stay where we were, or we could risk transporting her by ambulance to UT. I can't say enough about the care we received from the ICU staff. They were incredible. They sat down with Jody and I and they explained the situation. Dr. Shams, the neurologist, looked at us and told us point blank that if it was his daughter, he would send her. I'll never forget what happened next because I paused for a moment and I looked at Jody so we could talk about the pros and the cons. When he leaned forward, he put his hand on my knee and he said, Mr. Herod, you don't understand. We can't wait. You need... You need to tell us right now we can't wait. So we made the decision to send her to UT in the ambulance. Once again, behind all of this, God was working to send the right person at the right moment. The plane had been sent to its next destination as soon as it was determined Emma couldn't fly. But the paramedic team stayed. Why they stayed was the Spirit of the Lord because the leader of that team said that something in her heart told her to stay, not to leave. And the other members of the team agreed. Later she told us that if we could have gotten her a cracker box with wheels, she would have gotten him at UT. They let Jody ride in the ambulance with them. And I thank God for the people that were there that night. You'll never know what that meant. 
Samuel, Jody, and Ellen and I followed the ambulance. We made it to UT in an hour. Along the way, the paramedics would lean forward and tell Jody through the window, she's doing fine, Mrs. Herod. Her vitals are stable. She's doing great. The doctors in the neurocritical care unit went to work immediately to stabilize him. Dr. Langdon, who is the head of the NCC unit, is an incredible doctor. In fact, he was so good to us. I remember coming in one morning to Emma's room in the NCC unit, and he had decorated it with Christmas lights. Just an amazing man. He met us that morning after spending the night with Emma. And he explained that they were treating her for every possibility. And they were treating her concurrently. What that means is they weren't waiting to see if one medicine would work. They were hitting her with everything at once. He likened it to a shotgun blast where he was saying, we're giving her everything we possibly know. We made it through the night. But there were many more long nights ahead of us. We were in the neurocritical care unit at the University of Tennessee Medical Center from November 23rd to December 30th, 37 days. Emma was becoming more stable, but she was going through what they called neurostorming. That meant her brain couldn't control her vital signs. Her temperature would spike. It's funny, you find those little moments to laugh when her temperature would really spike. We would go into the room to find her covered with wet towels and fans around her. And I was joking with Dr. Lane and I said, all this medical equipment and you bring out wet towels and fans? And he said, nothing works better for a high fever. We would wait and pray. Emma had a feeding tube and a tracheostomy inserted and she was breathing on a ventilator. In mid-December, she underwent surgery for a brain biopsy where some, sample, some tissue, sample tissue, was sent to the Mayo Clinic because at this point, no one was able to diagnose what was going on. As the days of December went by, Emma began to stabilize. There were moments when she would breathe over the ventilator and there would be times where she would wiggle her big toe in any movement, any movement, Any movement was a sign of encouragement. We laugh because we say one day Emma's going to get the biggest kick of the fact that we stood for hours watching her big toe. As Christmas came and went, it was clear that it was time for us to move out of the neurocritical care unit. Emma was stable and no longer considered to be in immediate danger, so we were praying for wisdom on what to do next. God was working. He opened and shut doors according to his will. And our first thought was to get Emma to a rehab facility that could specialize in helping someone come out of a coma. But after reviewing her case, that facility turned us down. They said since there wasn't a clear diagnosis, they felt like she was still too high risk to be admitted to their facility. And we were devastated by that. But God was working to send us exactly where we needed to be. We began looking at the select specialty hospital in North Knoxville. It's a place where they, they specialize in weaning people off the ventilator and getting them strong enough to go to rehab. And so on November, I'm sorry, on December 30th, we made the move to select specialty hospital in North Knoxville. 
We stayed at Select Specialty Hospital from December 30th to February 23rd. Within a week, to God's glory, Emma was no longer on a ventilator. She's breathing on her own. The respiratory therapists there were wonderful. They worked with Emma diligently and they put up with me and Jody and Ellen and Samuel with our questions. Occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech therapists began to work with Emma. Some very generous people allowed us to get a room at the Holiday Inn Express behind the hospital. And that was such a great blessing. Jody and I would alternate spending nights with Emma. The spring semester had begun at Milligan, so Ellen went back to school and we'd made the decision to homeschool Samuel. So it kind of gave us a, a place to step out for a few moments and rest. At this point, a definitive diagnosis still had not been made, and quite frankly, there's still not a definitive diagnosis. They were working with that it could be a thing called acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. It looked like it could be necrotizing encephalitis. Right now, her record simply stated it's demyelating neuropathy with suspected necrotizing. You simply don't know. When Emma first arrived at Select, after about a week, they did an MRI to compare it to the one she had received at UT. This MRI showed that things were the same. Her brain looked the same. There had been no change one way or the other. And they said, in a few weeks, we'll do another one and we'll compare and see what progress is going on. On February the 10th, a second MRI was scheduled and we began to pray for God to do something big. Well, he did. It just wasn't in the direction we had hoped. We got the results back on February the 13th and it didn't look good. It looked like that the disease, whatever it was, was worse. It was spreading. And it looked like that it had affected her brain stem, worst of all. Through tears in their eyes, the doctors told us there was nothing else they could do. No more treatments, no more medicines. Everything that could be done had been done. Since her disease is rare, they said there's no way they could predict the time or the path it would take. Six weeks, six months. All they could say is, we don't know. Now, our first thought, we're going to take Emma home. We're going to take care of her. But once again, God had placed people in our life at the right time. The physician's assistant to the neurologist at North Knox was a lady named Kim. We thank God for her. When we first met her, she looked at Emma's chart. She said, Emma Herod. We said, yes. She said, I've been following her on Facebook. She was a student at DTSU, good friends with Amy. One of the members of Trinity had been her favorite teacher at ETSU. God doesn't do things by accident or coincidence. Kim sat down with us and she said, I want you to think through this. She said, you don't know what path this is going to take. You don't want to be caught in a situation where you have a need and you end up waiting for 30 minutes for medical help to arrive. She said, I worked some at the hospice house in Bristol. She said, I would recommend you 
taking a look at that. So that's what we did. Jody, Samuel, Ellen, and I drove up one Monday. We visited some facilities. But when we walked in to one Medical Park Boulevard, the hospice house, we knew that's where we needed to be. There was a serenity and a peace there. And so on February the 23rd, we made the trip to the hospice house in Bristol. And as weird as it sounds, it's been an incredible experience. The staff there is wonderful, compassionate, kind, very capable. They're taking good care of us and Emma. But listen to me, the most amazing thing is this. We're seeing improvements. Things that were not supposed to happen are happening. Now, we don't know what that means. Jody and I, our world has become very small. We focus on the day. When I say small improvements, this is what I mean. Emma will move her fingers on command now. Emma, give us a thumbs up and we'll see her thumbs start to come up. She will respond to yes and no questions. Even questions of math. One plus one, Emma, is it three? And Emma will say no. Is it four? No. Is it two? Yes. She remembered her mother's favorite color. How can these things be? I don't know. All we can say is God is working. And we believe that. He has opened up the doors so a speech therapist is working with Emma now to improve her swallow. And we ask you to continue to pray with us. Don't give up praying. We don't know what the final outcome will be. We know what our prayers are and we're seeing God do things. And our next step, we're praying that he would open up the door so that one day we could have the tracheostomy completely removed because she's swallowing and coughing. We spend our days caring for her. For the most part, Jody and I sleep there in the room with her. As one nurse told us, in your situation, you could give up and just sit and watch her, or you can do what you can do each day. And so that is what we can do. And I cannot tell you how thankful I am for my wife. There really is something amazing about the bond between a mother and a daughter. I love my daughter more than you can imagine. I love both of them and my son. But to watch Jody care for Emma, to set her alarm, and the nurses come in at midnight, two, four, and six, and Jody gets up at one, three, and five to check on her, night after night after night. We know the gravity of the prognosis. We also know that God will have the last word. So we press on. We've made the choice. The choice to focus on doing each day what we can do. We make the choice each day to believe, to love, and to hope. Now this is not a road that anyone would have chosen to go down. I mean, we became that family at the hospital. You know that family that when you're in the hospital and things are bad, you always say, well, things are bad for us, but look at that family. It could be worse. We became that standard. <laughs> you don't choose that. We wouldn't have chosen this road, but our choice is how will we travel it? 
I've often thought of that moment in J.R.R. Tolkien's classic work, The Fellowship of the Ring, when Frodo and the band of travelers are deep in the mines of Moria, and, and Frodo looks at Gandalf and he says, I wish this ring would have never come to me. I wish this would have never happened. And Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times. But that's not theirs to decide. All you can do is decide to do what you will with the time that has been given to you. You have to make that choice. That's why the words that Paul writes at the end of verse 18 strike me like a punch. Yes, and I will rejoice. That statement, I will rejoice, is a statement of choice. See, Paul's in prison. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. And if that's not hard enough where you would look and say, God, I'm serving you. I'm preaching the gospel. Why am I in prison? Why does my proclamation appear to be hindered? On top of all that, there are others that are preaching the gospel out of mixed motives. Some are doing it to make money because if you were a great speaker, you could make a lot of money. Some are doing it to spite Paul out of jealousy. But Paul says, I could look at this situation and I could choose gloom or I could choose hope. I could choose despair or I could choose joy. And so Paul says, I will choose to rejoice. Now hear me clearly. Choosing to rejoice does not mean ignoring the situation. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says that he and his traveling companions experienced suffering that they despaired even of life itself. In 2 Timothy, Paul's in prison again and he says, Timothy, when you come, bring my cloak, bring my parchments, bring John Mark. Paul is aware of what's going on. Choosing to rejoice, lifting your head to praise does not mean turning a blind eye to the situation. Now, I don't want to give you any misunderstandings. People have said, your faith amazes me. Don't let my faith amaze you. My faith is weak. Let's be candid with you. Jody and I have not always been whistling onward Christian soldier through the midst of this. There have been many dark nights in the chapel where our song has been, O Man of Sorrows. We spent many nights crying out to God and there have been many times our prayers have begun, Why God? Only to end with, Lord, you are our only hope. We believe. Help our unbelief. The emotions, the grief, and the pain are real and it's not wise nor healthy to ignore them. So what does it mean to choose to rejoice? It means we choose where our mind will dwell. It means taking every thought captive to the gospel. It means asking God for help to make that choice. I'll never forget one night we had gathered around Emma's bed to pray. We always do that. And Ellen, you may not remember this, but I remember it very well. We each went around to say a sentence prayer. And Ellen prayed, Lord, even in the midst of this, help us to find some joy. Honey, I've never forgotten that. To say, Lord, help us. Help us to find joy. So we make the choice. You can make that choice. Is it easy? No. But that's why you pray and you determine to be stubborn in your conviction. New phrase that Jody coined that we hold on to each day is stubborn scares you when your wife says, my word for the day is stubborn. She says, Mark, stubborn faith. Stubborn faith. That's the faith Paul shows. Look at the end of verse, verse 20. Or I'm sorry, verse 19. 
He says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, at the beginning here, it's a little bit ambiguous as to what Paul means by deliverance. It's believed that he's alluding to a passage from Job because when you're suffering, what better book to read than Job? He's quoting a portion from Job chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, where Job says, Even though he slay me, yet will I love him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job says, even if my life is taken from me, I will love him. I'm still going to ask God. I'm still going to talk to him. But then Job says, this will be my salvation. That word salvation is deliverance. This will be my deliverance. What is that deliverance? That the godless shall not come before him. Now, based on that background, Paul's expectation of deliverance is to stand before God vindicated. Vindicated that he is righteous. Vindicated that being thrown in jail was not the right thing for the ungodly to do. And you see here this tension Paul has. If I die in jail, I go to be with God. If I'm released, I will live for him. Now, Paul ends up being, being convinced that he's going to be released. See, that's the other way that he looks at it. Paul says, if I die, I'll be vindicated before God because of the gospel. If I live, I will live for Christ. What can man do to me? It's going to be okay. He's saying, either way, I am covered. And that is the confidence that as believers, we need to live with each and every day. You know how you get to that point of being stubborn in your conviction? Through relying on community. There are two reasons for Paul's confidence. Look in verse 19. He says, I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So how does Paul get to this stubborn conviction? There are two means, and Jody and I have found these evident in our lives. First is prayer. Isn't it amazing that Paul, this apostle who so frequently writes about his prayers for the church, now says, it is through your prayers that I know this will work out. We need others to be praying for us. You've been so gracious in that. So gracious in so many ways. And Jody and I plead with you, don't stop praying for us. And don't stop praying for one another. Asking others to pray is not like God's operating with some online petition where he's saying, if you get a thousand people to pray, then I'll say yes. That's not what he's talking about. The effective prayer of one righteous man availeth much. You see, the reason we share a request is twofold. We share God's glory when we share the request. In 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul wrote, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many help us by praying so that many will give thanks to God as people pray and we see improvements and we share them people give praise and glory to God it allows more people to seek him and to give glory to him and to share in the joy of what he is doing it also means we share the burden when we share our request. Now, I've heard in my ministry, many times people make the statement, I don't see how anyone goes through hard times without the Lord. That's true. What I've learned is this. I don't see how anyone goes through hard times 
without the body of Christ showing God to them. See, in those dark nights, you don't always feel the presence of God. Doesn't mean God's not with you, you just don't feel that. But when the body of Christ comes around you and reminds you of God's love and shows God's love in a prayer, a text, a meal, a visit, you're reminded you're not alone. See, one of the prolonged effects of any illness or grief is this. You feel isolated. Now, no one does that on purpose. No one does. But you feel alone. Because the truth is, for everyone else, life is going on like a cheetah running across the Serengeti. It's going fast. But when you're in grief and you're hurting, your life is like a turtle trying to walk through molasses. It's slow. Now, nobody means to do that. But when you go through the checkout line at the grocery store and they say, have a nice day, in your mind you can't help but think, oh, you have no idea what a nice day would be for me. <laughs> but you smile and you say, thank you. When the body of Christ comes along beside you, it helps to ease that isolation. It reminds you you're not alone. And the word here that Paul uses for prayer is a word of desperation. You know what the key is to praying well? Desperation. And if you're not praying regularly, you are operating under the delusion that you are still in control. Because believe me, we're not. We're not. I learned that real quickly. And when you get to the point where you recognize there's nothing else no one else that can save you. You will cry out to God. So please continue that on our behalf. Living in desperation can become weary. People ask us how we are doing. Jody and I don't know how to answer that. I mean, we, we don't. We, we don't know how we're doing. You get up each day and you do what you need to do. Yes, there's a level of weariness that is set in. But we know, according to what Paul says next, that along with the prayers of the people, the help of the Spirit of Jesus is at work. That help is the assistance, giving what is needed exactly when it is needed. Now, the Spirit of Jesus can do that in a, a subjective sense of this inner strengthening. But what we have found is that he works to give us what we need through his people. I tell you, we have met some incredible people in the medical profession in this. Incredible. We've gotten close to a lot of them. One of the CNAs, her name is Julie, and she works at Select. She was talking with Jody and I after we had turned in, and it was just a rough day for us. And I'll never forget, Julie looked at us, and she, her eyes were wide, and she said, You know, Mark and Jody, I don't worry about Emma. God's got Emma. She's okay. She said, I worry about you too. God's got Emma. That was a word we needed to be reminded of. Because we knew he's got us also. Do you know this is the only place in Paul's letters where he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus Christ? 
And I think it's because in the midst of his suffering, he holds up Jesus as his model. Jesus suffered on the cross with the hope of vindication, the reality of vindication in the resurrection. That he will see us through suffering because suffering is not the end of the story. Deliverance is. So our choice to rejoice is not based on the circumstance but on the outcome because either way God is seeing us through this God's not only got Emma he's got us and he's holding to us with the help of the Spirit of Jesus my prayer is that you know that you know that hope that comes from him now suffering will come to each and every one of us in some way no one will escape this world without suffering. We never expected a tragedy like this. We don't know the end of the story. But I encourage you to be ready before it happens. Now, I'm not talking about some morbid fascination with something bad happening or living in worry. That's just pleasing to God. But I am talking about being prepared, knowing what you believe. So that when that time comes, you're prepared. We've joked with Ellen and Samuel that the first sign of a headache, we're going straight to the ER. No Tylenol. We're just going straight. Be prepared for that. One of the most astounding ways that God encouraged us happened in November just after Thanksgiving. We were still at the UT Med Center. Someone from the church had visited us. They brought a bunch of cards and letters and things from you all just to, to give us a word of encouragement. And somehow, I can't explain it to this day, in the midst of all that was a note from Emma. Emma loves writing letters by hand. So her and I had been writing back and forth. And I had written her in October when the presidential elections were still going on and I had said, you know, I'm concerned about what's going to happen with our country and what's going on and Emma had written me back. And that little card was her answer. Once again, I don't know how it ended up here. But when I opened it, I read the card and in Emma's own handwriting, she had written this. We don't have to be in the know as long as we know the one who does know. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon us understanding why. His faithfulness is dependent upon His character. So this morning I ask you, do you know Him? In your life, do you know the one that does know? Do you trust Him even when you don't understand what He is doing? Because even the worst of circumstances cannot change the fact that He died on the cross and He rose again so that our sins can be forgiven. I hope you know Him and you turn to Him. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me now if you will.